seated. And I invite you as you take your seats to take your Bibles and to turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 4, we are going to finish this section with the woman at the well today. And what a beautiful section this is. What a wonderful time we have had in this section. Last week was uh, just an amazing Sunday together. Um, I I so appreciate uh, the encouragement and the feedback that um, you give uh, to me. It's helpful to know uh, how I'm coming across and how Jesus is being presented. And a couple of you said last week, it was so encouraging to hear that you said last Sunday was an experience of the, of the grace of God. It was an experience of the compassion of Jesus. And uh, I believe this text lends itself to that. Last week was an experience. It was an event in seeing the compassion of Jesus on display, not just for this woman, but for all of us. He has pursued all of us. He has loved all of us intentionally, compassionately, relationally. It was an amazing Sunday last week, and we get the privilege yet again of coming together and studying God's word and seeing Jesus' grace and compassion on display. I want to read these verses uh, for us this morning. We are in John chapter 4, verse 27. We're going to finish out this section, which is in verse 42. I want to read these verses off of the heels of what we studied with the Samaritan woman. We've studied what Jesus did with her and for her, how he spoke to her and drew out the sin that was in her heart and exposed it and then graciously dealt with it. Talked about worship, all of those different aspects. She asks, verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And that closed our section last week. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came. They were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Father, as we 
study these verses, I pray that Jesus would be on full display yet again. God, we want to see him. We, we sing it so often. We pray it so often. Show us Christ. Um, God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word so that every tongue confesses Christ is Lord. Just as the Samaritans confessed he is the Savior of the world, I pray that we would confess the same truth and we would live according to it. Guide our time now. Spirit, come illuminate our understanding so that we can see. And while seeing, we would truly see and comprehend and not be like the Pharisees who see but don't see, who hear but don't hear. We want to be transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Do that in our midst this day, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In this section, we meet three different groups of people, three different people, that, and we'll see their three reactions. So we're just going to divide it up into three different groups of people, and really we see them interspersed throughout. So by way of outline, we're just going to take this whole thing together. There's really no point one, point two, point three. We're just going to see it all together. But the three groups of people, or the three people that are um, represented here, are the disciples, number one, the woman, number two, and the crowds, number three. And they all have different reactions, and those reactions are helpful reactions, and we're going to take a look at where we fit in those reactions. So let's pick it up in verse 27 with the disciples. At this point, Jesus' disciples came, came back to him from where they were. Where were they? You remember that Jesus had sent them on a mission. The mission was, go get food. So they're coming back. And I love how John says, at this point... There was a specific point at which they came back, and it was designed by God in his providence that they would be gone for the amount of time they were gone. And right when Jesus says, I am the Christ, and the woman goes, I have to tell other people about this, and their conversation ends, that's when the disciples come back. What beautiful providence. If God is leading you to share the gospel with somebody, please know that he has a perfect time frame and a perfect timetable for you to be able to share the word of Christ. To share the gospel before the distractions might come. I love that. At this point, the disciples come back and they're amazed. Why are they amazed? Because he had been crossing not only ethnic boundaries, but also he's a rabbi speaking with a woman by himself. But they're not asking, what do you seek her? Why do you speak with her? They're just dumbfounded. They're amazed. Jesus is breaking every taboo there is. One rabbi said it this way. A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter on account of what they may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the streets, not even with his own wife, not even with his own wife in the street, and especially not with another woman on account of what men might say. Now, I think that's really good advice for Chelsea and Ethan for dating. Don't ever talk to the opposite spouse until you're 55, and then we'll think about it. I love that. But that's terrible advice. That's terrible teaching from the rabbis to say women are looked down upon. They're looked as half-citizens. And I think one of the reasons why John puts this account into this gospel is because he's showing us yet again that Jesus has a different understanding of relationships. He loved and cherished the women that were around him. Just think about his mother, he took care of her all the way up until the cross. When on the cross, if there's ever a moment in which you can say, I'm done taking care of other people, it's that moment while you're being crucified. And yet he still says, Mother, I want to take care of you. Behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Take care of each other. 
He loved his mother. He loved Mary Magdalene. He loved Mary and Martha. He loved the woman who had the the issue of blood. He loved the Syrophoenician woman. He loved all sorts of different types of women. He interacted with them in a way that would have gone beyond the boundaries of the taboo set up by the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples don't understand it. They've lived by a different code. Another rabbi says this, He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit Gehenna, which is hell. You talk much with a woman, you're going to hell. That's what the disciples believed. That's what they had been taught. And so they're amazed that they find Jesus speaking with this woman. They don't get it. We'll come back to them not getting it, as we will several times in this gospel account. Verse 28. The woman left her water pot and went into the city. So we have the disciples, and we're going to see the woman. We're going to see what she says, and then we're going to go back to the disciples, and we'll go to the crowds, and we'll go back to the woman and the crowds. Verse 28. This woman leaves her water pot. I don't want to make too much out of this. But, number one... The word water pot, we've already seen that word before. It's in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine. Those water pots, those were gallons and gallons of water. They were very, very large. It's one of the reasons why she probably said, verse 15, Sir, please give me this water. I don't want to come all the way here to draw the water. I have this huge water pot. I don't want to bring it anymore. But, and again, I don't want to make too much of this, but in her excitement... The very thing that she was trying to do, going to the well to draw water, she forgot all about it. Who cares about the water? Who cares about that anymore? Spiritually, she has living water now. She doesn't need to worry about this physical water at this moment. She needs to tell others about the spiritual water that she has found. And so she runs into the city and she says to the men, there's a lot of different interpretations of what men could mean here, could mean the whole city could be the men that she had been in relationships with and immoral relationships. I think it's better to understand, especially with what she's about to say, that the men are uh, the elders of the city. Uh, they would stand outside of the gates or sit at the gates and they would talk and they would adjudicate things. Whenever issues would come up, they'd speak about them and they'd, they would be the law. They would judge it. And I think that's why she's going to them to say, verse 29, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. Is this the Christ? Come judge. Be the judge. You studied the law. You studied the Torah. You understand. Come be the judge. I think that's what she's saying. But in the statement in verse 29, she says, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. I love that statement. Now, could Jesus have told her every single thing she'd ever done? Yes, he could have. Could there be more that Jesus said than is recorded here? Absolutely. I I tend to think what she's saying is a bit of a hyperbole. But I think it's important to understand that. Number one, she feels naked and exposed before Jesus because Jesus sees through and she knows Jesus in his omniscience at this point sees everything she's ever done. She feels completely exposed. Number two... What Jesus had spoken about specifically was, his, was her immorality. And when she says, he said everything that I've ever done, she is identifying her immorality with who she is. She's placing the centrality of who she is in her heart, in her soul. She is an immoral woman. 
That's characteristic of who she is. That is her identity. And Jesus just called that out and told her everything that she had ever done. But I think the biggest thing that spawns verse 30 happening, they go out of the city and are amazed and want to, want to talk to this man. Why would anybody be amazed at a woman who has such an immoral past an immoral record that the entire city, the entire town knows, and they will spurn her so much so that she has to go to the well by herself, why would they ever be amazed that somebody says, hey, I know you're a sinner? Why would that amaze anybody? It wouldn't. For her to come back and say, he's said everything about what I've done. He said all of my sin. The men are probably thinking, I can say all of your sin too. Why is that a big deal? I think implied here. It's the fact that she's saying, he said everything I've done and I'm fine with that. I have no more guilt. I have no more shame. The response is different. Instead of going to the men, um, wallowing in her guilt, wallowing in her self-pity and saying, I have another person on my list of people that spurn and hate me and I don't ever want to see him again. She says, he knows everything about me and I'm fine with that. Again, the grace of our Lord to bring up all the sin that she's done and for her to say, I still want to hang out with you. That's, that's what we need to be to one another. That's how we were pursued by Jesus. And since her guilt is gone and her shame is gone and these men obviously see this, this man has changed something in this woman, they run out of the city and they go to him. This is just, everybody's going to start flocking out to go see Jesus. What a beautiful mark of salvation. I've been saved, my guilt has been taken away, my shame is gone, I must tell others. What a beautiful mark of salvation. Verse 30, they go out of the city, they were coming to him. Meanwhile, back to the disciples. The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So she has gone into the city. The disciples say, what's gone on here? We don't understand, but they're not asking him specifically. And as these men are coming back to speak with Jesus, the disciples say, eat. Now, if I'm Jesus, he has just, remember at the very beginning of this account, let's go all the way back to the very beginning of this account. He lays down on top of a well because he's so exhausted. He's so tired. And we said right off the bat, the grace of Jesus is in his intentionality to say, you know what, I'm exhausted and I just sent these guys to go get food because we have no food. So I'm tired and I'm hungry. And yet he still goes out of his way to speak to this woman. Amazing. If I'm Jesus, I've just done what I needed to do. And when she goes, I'm done. And they come back, hey, eat. And I go, thank you. Let's eat. Let's party. We're done. Jesus, in his amazing grace, teaches. If he was tired before the woman spoke to him, how tired must he be now? If he was hungry before the woman came to the, the well, how much more now? And yet, instead of just simply letting it go and saying, okay, I'll eat, he engages with them. And these poor disciples just don't get it. Verse 32, he says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So they're saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? I just, again, put, put some flesh on this passage. I just see, I think it's Peter, probably. When Jesus says, Peter says, Hey, Rabbi, eat. Come on, we got your food. Look at us. Give us some accolades. We found the food. 
And Jesus says, I already have food. And somebody in this group, and again, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's probably going to be Peter, goes, excuse me, we just went to four McDonald's, two Wendy's, a couple of El Pollo Locos. We've, we found food finally for you, and you're telling me all along you were sitting on food. You had it already. What in the world? Jesus says to them, it's different. My food is to do, verse 34, the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says in verse 32, I have food. And the disciples say it must be physical. Why'd you send us? You sent us on a wild goose chase when you had food all along. What's going on? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying I have spiritual food. You're looking for physical food. I have spiritual food. This is the fourth time in John's gospel. In this gospel alone, four chapters, four times that we've seen spiritual blindness on display. Full display. Go back to chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says to the Jews who are demanding a sign for the authority of cleansing the temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's talking about his body. And the Jews say, you mean the temple, the physical temple. It took us 46 years to build this temple. That's number one, spiritual blindness. Jesus gives a spiritual message And they take it physically. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answers and says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? Can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? That's impossible. Spiritual truth, physical representation. They don't see it spiritually blinded. John chapter 4, verse 10. Number 3. Jesus answered and says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she says, Yeah, but you don't have a bucket. Spiritual understanding totally missed. Totally misses the point because they don't have the ability to see. But number four is in verse 31. When the disciples say, eat, and Jesus says, I already have food, and they say, who brought you food? There's something different, and there's something instructive for us. The three people before this were completely not saved. We know they weren't saved. The new birth hasn't happened, and they're spiritually blind, of course. But just because the new birth has happened in your life doesn't mean that you aren't prone to still not being able to see spiritually what God wants you to see. These are the disciples And they still don't get it. They're not going to get it for a long time. They're not going to get it even when Jesus dies and rises from the dead. They're going to struggle. How much more so will we struggle? If I can just be honest and as gracious as I can be, we are a very dense people. We struggle to see what Jesus is doing and what he's saying and what he means by what he says. So Jesus explains it. He says, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Now, I don't think that Jesus is saying when people are really spiritual, they're not going to need food at all. They're just going to go without food. I don't think that's what he's saying because he's going to say elsewhere in the Gospels, give us this day our daily bread. We need bread. We need sustenance. He just sent the disciples to get food. He needs food. So what is he saying? Food is what you need In order to do your work, food is what you need in my own life 
just to be happy. <laughs> if I don't have food, I get grumpy. Food is what you need to give you energy to do the work that you need to do. The reason why I say that is because Jesus is going to say something really profound in this statement. If food gives you the strength for your work, and Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, then Jesus is saying, I am strengthened to do what God has given me to do by doing what God has given me to do. My food is to do what God has given me to do. So what strengthens me to to accomplish God's will is doing God's will. It's a cycle. I get strength from doing God's will, and the strength that I get from doing God's will enables me to do God's will. What is the will of the Father that Jesus is referring to? Turn to John chapter 12. Just using John, there's two places in John where he specifically says, this is the will of the Father for me. John chapter 12, verse 49. Actually, let's pick it up in verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. So my words are going to judge him. I came to give life, but my words are going to judge if they don't believe. Why? Verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative. But the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So what is the first explicit command of God, the Father, to God the Son? Speak the words of eternal life. Speak the words of eternal life. That's what Jesus just did here with the woman at the well. Speak the words of eternal life. Turn to John chapter 6, verse 39, the second place that we find an explicit command that the Father has given to the Son. John chapter 6, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me. So, what is the will of the Father for the Son? To give eternal life and secure eternal life. To give and secure eternal life. That's God's work. To seek and to save that which is lost. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, my food is to give eternal life to those around me. And that energizes me to give more eternal life to those around me. Now, for us, practically, we can't give eternal life. You may be a really, really nice person but you don't have the ability to give someone eternal life. But what can we do? We can participate in the work of ministry. We can have the blessed privilege of serving in kingdom work. And there is spiritual sustenance in doing that. As you serve, I know that many of you have experienced this. You're dead tired. You serve Jesus in some way, shape, or form in ministry. And you should not be able to keep your eyelids open. But you are just on 
a spiritual adrenaline rush, as it were, serving Jesus, ministering to those that he's placed in your path. I know that happens to me on a regular basis. Uh, I usually have to wind down after small groups on Wednesday night. Like Wednesday, I think this last Wednesday, people left at like 1130. I'm still up for like an hour just winding down, just excited about what God has done in our midst. It was amazing. Every Wednesday just keeps getting better and better in our midst. That's what Jesus is speaking of. He's saying, I came weary to the well, and as I engaged in spiritual, relational ministry, it invigorated me in such a way that I forgot about the food. Who needs the food? In fact, he is so invigorated that he keeps teaching, and he doesn't eat the food right away. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon. I, I, there was a part of me that just wanted to read his sermon next week. Um, he preached a sermon on why Christians are so unhappy. It's a very, very good sermon. Uh, maybe I'll post a link in our newsletter in a couple of weeks. Um, very, very helpful sermon. Here's the point of it. He says, most Christians believe that if I read my Bible and I pray and I go to church, I should be satisfied. I should be a happy Christian. And a lot of Christians are looking at themselves going, why am I not filled with joy? I go to church, I read my Bible, and I pray, why am I not filled with joy? And his whole point in the sermon from these verses is, you aren't satisfied because you aren't serving. You aren't satisfied because you aren't serving. It's very possible that if you sense something isn't right in your life, even if you're reading the Bible, even if you're praying, even if you have regular devotions and you go to church regularly, that you simply aren't involved in relational ministry in such a way that would invigorate you and give you spiritual sustenance. In our church, my, my question is, how are you serving? What are your spiritual gifts and how are you using them? If your spiritual gifts are, are for one thing, but you're doing something completely different, you're going to be like a Lamborghini driving on the freeway on the 405 in rush hour traffic. You're just going to be chomping at the bit to do something else, but you can't. What is your spiritual gift? How are you using it? If you don't exercise your spiritual gift, you will either become an emaciated Christian because you aren't doing the will of God in serving the church and in fellowship with one another, and you will just shrivel up, or you will become an obese Christian who just feeds and feeds and feeds and feeds but doesn't serve. There's no outlet. There's no working out in a church. Either way, you will not be a healthy Christian if you don't serve intentionally and relationally in the church. You won't be. You can't be. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. The joy of labor in ministry revives us, just as it revived our Savior. Then he says this, verse 35, Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. There's a saying. Some people take this to mean that Jesus is talking in January or December, and four months down the road, harvest is going to happen. I actually don't think so, just because of the timetable and the chronology of the book. I don't think we're in December. I think what Jesus is saying is, you have a saying, and your saying is a true saying. Plant something, four months later, you'll probably reap something. The harvest will come after four months, there you go. 
But I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest now. Already, verse 36, he who reaps is receiving wages. So you don't have to wait for four months to receive your wages. You are reaping now. You're gaining the harvest now. You're gathering fruit for eternal life, for life eternal. That's the connector. I've come to do the will of God. What is the will of the Father? It is to give eternal life, and that's what he's doing. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. I think what Jesus is saying as he's sitting on the well, is he says, look, you have a saying. And your saying is four months and then the harvest. You need time. You plant something and you need time for that something to grow. And Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth, I have a completely different timetable. I can plant and reap the same day. He just did that. He planted the seed of the gospel in this woman's soul and reaped a harvest that day in such a way that she has salvation. And as he says, look now to the fields, I believe what he's saying as these men are coming from the town out to visit him, uh, those of you who have been to Israel or have even just seen pictures of the Middle East, you see a lot of people in white tunics. I believe what Jesus is saying here is lift up your eyes and look and you will see there is a harvest coming and it's white. But this isn't white like the grains of the wheat that's coming up and it's white and you can see that it's ready to reap the harvest. These are people that are walking wearing white robes, wearing white tunics. And if you lift up your eyes right now, the seed has been sown in their hearts today by the woman and they're coming and we're going to reap that harvest. They're going to be saved. He's prophesying in this one verse, these people coming out to see me and to hear me speak are going to be saved today. God has a completely different timetable than you and I have. Completely different. You might have somebody in your family or a friend or a relationship that you just think there's no way they're ever going to be saved. I've tried time and time and time again. I've tried to share the gospel. I've tried to love them. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. And it's just going to take forever. And I'll just keep planting seed, planting seed, planting seed. And in your heart of hearts, you know that Jesus can do anything, but you're just struggling to believe this is going to take forever. It may. But just know the next time you get together with them as you sow the seed, that might be the day that the harvest happens. Jesus isn't on our timetable. That's why he says, verse 37, in this case, the saying is true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What is he talking about? He's talking about this woman and these men. Jesus has labored to bring the seed of the gospel to this woman. This woman probably heard, also these men probably heard from John the Baptist. They've read from Moses. There's been labor that's been happening, and Jesus says, you get the blessing of being able to go in today and reap the harvest. You didn't labor for any of it, but you get to enter in. Who is there in your life that you are entering into labor that's already been done? Think about praising God today for people who have gone before you and labored in that soul that you can come and the ground's already been tilled and it's soft and it's ready for the seed. 
Who is there in your life that you are laboring for the purpose of others coming behind you to reap the harvest? Paul says this. It's not us who, who produce the fruit. It's God who does that. We plant, we water, we, we do work, but God produces the fruit. So Jesus says, I've sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others labor, and now you get the blessing of entering into their labor. And as he's talking to them, we move to the third group. The crowds come out. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So the Samaritans come to Jesus, and they're asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. That the Samaritans would ask a Jewish rabbi to stay with them for two days is enormous. This is breaking all ethnic boundaries, all taboos, but they don't care anymore. The new birth is happening, and they want him to stay there so that they can hear him teach and believe his word. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, and this is key, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. That was good. That got it going. But we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We are always trying our best as we labor in gospel ministry. We are always trying to get people to move away from what we are saying to what God is saying. We're always trying to get people to move away from our testimony to God's testimony. Sure, you can say he changed my life. Amen and amen. But get them to how he does that. Get them to God's testimony. And I love how they give us that example. Thank you, woman at the well, for sharing with us. But we believe not because of what you said. We believe because we have seen for ourselves. In a very practical way, this is what we attempt to do at church we go out, we gather to be edified, we gather for the purpose of believers being encouraged and strengthened in the, in the word. And we scatter to say, like the woman, Jesus has told me everything I've ever done, and he loves me, and he has given me grace, and he has saved me, and I want you to come meet him. And so we just invite, come meet him. And slowly but surely, people will come, and they will say, you know what, I believe in Jesus because of what you've told me. And they'll say, I believe in Jesus because of what you told me, because of what you told me. And then as they come and they see Jesus and as they know who he is, they will say, you know what? I believed because of what you said, but now I believe because of Jesus and what he has said. By the way, verse 42, when the Samaritans say, this one is indeed the savior of the world. They're the first people in this gospel that ever say, Jesus is the Savior. He is who he claims to be. And they're Samaritans. They're Samaritans. The Jewish people thought there's no way they're ever going to have a Messiah. They're half-breeds. God doesn't love them. And they're the first to say, no, he's the Savior. He's the Savior. So, these three groups of people present three implications for our lives. Number one, just in conclusion, the disciples. The disciples. If you were to ask them in that moment, hey, are you spiritually blind right now? They would have said, no, Jesus is crazy. We don't ever know when we're spiritually blind. 
If we did, we'd stop being spiritually blind. We need Jesus to open our eyes. We need the Spirit to open our eyes and to humble us to the dust, to enable us to see spiritually. How do we do that? We read the Scriptures. The Scriptures know our wicked hearts, and the Scriptures reveal to us what's going on. We need to be a part of fellowship so that we can grow, so that other people can speak into our lives and help, help us see where we are spiritually blind. Just like the disciples who had a multitude of spiritual blindness going on in the Gospels. We too can get to a place where our eyes are opened. We see clearly. And just like the book of Acts when they soar in ministry, we can do the same. Who is there in your life that has freedom, carte blanche, to just speak into your heart and say, Hey, you know I love you. And I see something that I think maybe you don't know about yourself. I see spiritual blindness. Who is there in your life that you've given that blank check to? You need those people that you have equity with, that you know love you and you love them, and you can fellowship together and grow. Number two, this woman, this woman, starting all the way back at the beginning of the chapter, who is there in your life that you think it's going to take forever for them to come to saving faith? God might have a different timetable, just like he had for this woman. If you would have asked everyone in that city, hey, who's the first person that's going to come to know Jesus Christ in our city, to know the Messiah in our city? No one would have said that woman. Jesus has a different timetable. He pursues intentionally, relationally. But number two, with this woman, see her response. She immediately goes and shares what happened. This is why people who have just been saved by God. Recent converts, they're the best evangelists because they just can't get over the fact that Jesus has saved them. Some of us have been Christians for long enough where we kind of get used to that idea. Yeah, I was bad. Jesus loved me. Amazing grace. Awesome. Thanks. Move on. We're never going to get over the reality of the gospel, even in heaven. In heaven, we're just going to be proclaiming Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. We shouldn't be in heaven, but we're here because of what He's done. Go. No matter if you have just been saved yesterday, or if you were saved 90 years ago, go and share what God has done. Finally, the crowds. The crowds, they come after hearing what the woman told to them. And they hear from Jesus and are saved. Multitudes are saved. When was the last time that you stopped and prayed for a sowing and a reaping around the world? A massive amount. Sometimes we refer to that as revival. It can happen. God could use us. The reality is all of our labor is important. All of our labor is important. And know, just like this woman entering into these relationships with the judges and the juries in this city, we are always entering into the labor of others. They had been reading from Moses and they had heard from John the Baptist and then she enters into that labor and boom, they hear and they're saved. The disciples come back from their journey to get food and what do you know? They get to reap a harvest. They enter into somebody's labor. Always know your labor is always important and somebody's going to come behind you and you're coming behind somebody intentionally serve the Lord this way and make it your food to do the will of the Father. 
as we wrap this account up, we're going to move on next week to other things. I just want to remind you, this all started because Jesus, in a wearied state, said, I'll minister. I'll minister. I'm exhausted, but I will minister. He intentionally pursued her. He intentionally pursues us. And we see the grace of Jesus throughout this whole account. As we close this morning, I want us to just be reminded and and kind of just simmer a little bit longer in this narrative uh, through a song that I'm going to show you. Father, I thank you so much for your grace. Full display of Jesus' love and compassion towards us in these verses. Oh God, you brought salvation to a woman that no one would have ever guessed would receive it. And then you brought salvation to a whole city who were enemies of the chosen people. God, your timetable is different. You sow one day, you reap one day. In the same exact moment, you can do all of it. You are amazing. And we stand in awe of you yet again. We are blown away by your grace. We love you and we thank you for pursuing us. Now, God, I pray that we would pursue others with that kind of love. And as we just end this section with the woman at the well and with this city of Sychar, and we move on with Jesus in the next couple of weeks as he moves back to Galilee, God, I pray that the truths that we have learned, um, the, the understanding that we have gained of your compassion, the reality of your grace, would not leave our memory anytime soon. Cement it in our hearts and in our minds in this moment. May we stand in awe of you together. I pray it in your name. Amen.